Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, 1 Kings chapters 4 and 5. We're going to finish up chapter 4 and get into chapter 5 of 1 Kings today. Now we're in a section of the Bible that deals with history more than establishing new God principles. Thus, in many cases, the raw history is told without comment on whether the actions of the various characters were were good or bad, moral or immoral, godly or carnal. And it's up to the reader to discern and determine for oneself the nature of the king's and the people's decisions and choices. How's the reader to determine this? By knowing God's laws and commands as they are written in the Torah. The people of Solomon's day were expected by the Lord to know right from wrong. Because Moses had laid it all out for them hundreds of years earlier. But by now, they were nearly ignorant of the Torah law. And so a new law was established, the law of the king. The king determined the laws his subjects were to go by, and sometimes those laws agreed with the Torah law, sometimes they didn't. The people didn't always seem to know the difference. I think the king didn't either. It's ironic that we believers of the 21st century have found ourselves in a similar situation. The law of the land has generally replaced the law of the Bible. God's laws. And sometimes we recognize the conflict between the two. Sometimes we don't. At other times, we simply tolerate and acquiesce when our government's laws require us to disobey God's laws. And the reason for this, as concerns believers in modern times at least, is the same as it was for the people of God's kingdom in Solomon's time. Ignorance, often willful ignorance of God's commandments. This is the reason that I rail against that portion of my beloved church that insists that we are strictly a New Testament church and as such the Old Testament is dead to us. The Old Testament, especially the Torah, is where God's foundational principles, His governing dynamics, His laws, His commandments, and His regulations are carefully given and explained the New Testament assumes the reader's knowledge of this. And thus it doesn't repeat all the tenets of the older covenants. Since many in the body of Christ have decided to not only skip that part of the Bible where God's instructions to us are contained, but even go so far as to label those divine instructions as defective or obsolete, We've made ourselves ignorant. And so we rather easily accept 
the substitution of local civil law and a morality based on majority rule in place of God-ordained morality and lifestyle. For instance, American governmental laws say that we're not liable for the monetary debts we've incurred at our own free choice if we get in too much of a jam. God says we are liable. American governmental law says it's our choice whether to take the life of a murderer or merely to incarcerate them for a long time. God says their lives must be forfeit both as a payment for their offense and as a safeguard for society. American law says that abortion should be free, safe, and legal and it's wrong to even protest against it. God says it's an abomination before Him. And many Christians and Jews completely agree with these and other laws as the new definition of proper morality in American society because an elected majority has created these laws. Watch closely as we journey through the two books of the Kings. As the Kings' laws slowly and steadily, baby step by baby step, override God's laws. The people seem either unaware or uninterested in this development and the kingdom rapidly nosedives into confusion and chaos. At first, everything seems to be wonderful. There's prosperity. Israel is an admired superpower. International leaders come from all over the world to see how Israel and its king were able to achieve such preeminence. But a few years later, within a handful of months after Solomon's death, Israel dissolves into two kingdoms. Immorality reigns and the remnants of this once great country become just like their pagan neighbors. This is the price that's paid when God's people abandoned God's laws and commandments. This is the price of when we go our own way believing that our hearts are now pure enough, our civilization advanced enough to decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. This is what happens when we unilaterally declare that God's ways are obsolete. They were for a more primitive people. But we, on the other hand, well, we're just beyond such limits and restrictions. First Kings chapter 4 contains two listings of officials in Solomon's administration. We went over the first list in verses 1 through 6 last week. These were essentially the folks who formed Shlomo's cabinet. They were the in, innermost circle of men closest to the king and with the full weight of national power at their disposal. The next list is actually the more interesting and impactful one. In fact, it is considered by many scholars as among the most crucial passages in the Bible for understanding the organization of Solomon's government because it gives a very 
accurate illustration, not only of the internal government structure, but also how the population of Israel was distributed along tribal and ethnic lines. In other words, on the surface, this is just a dry listing of names and territories. But underneath, it's a wonderful snapshot in time that helps to build a context for understanding Solomon's decisions and Israel's progress under him. Let's reread a portion of chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. We're going to read verses 7 to the end. Page 371 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Now Shlomo had 12 officers over all Israel who were in charge of providing food and supplies for the king and his household. Each one was in charge of provisions for one month out of the year. And they were the son of Hur in the hills of Ephraim, the son of Deker in Makatz, Shalbim, Bet Shemesh, Echlon Beit Hanan, the son of Hesed in Arubot. He also had charge of Soko in the territory of Hefer, the son of Avinadav. In all the area of Dor, he had to fought the daughter of uh, Shlomo as his wife. Bana, the son of Achlud, and Anak, Megiddo, and all of Beit Shan by Tzartan below Jezreel, from Beit Shan to Avel Mecholah, as far as beyond Yochmeam. The son of Gever and remote Gilad. He was in charge of the villages of Yair, the son of Manesha and Gilad, and in charge of the region of Argov and Bashan, 60 large cities with walls and bronze bars. Achinadab, the son of Edo, in Machanaim. Achimaatz in Naphtali. He also took Basmath, the daughter of Shlomo, as his wife. Ba'ana, the son of Hushai and Asher, and in Alot. Yehoshaphat, the son of Paruach in Yisachar. Shimei, the son of Elah in Benjamin, and Gever, the son of Uri in the land of Gilad, the country of Sichon, king of the uh, Emori, and Og, king of Bashan. Over all of these, there was one administrator in the land. Judah and Israel were as numerous as sand grains on the seashore. They ate, drank, and enjoyed themselves. Now, what's being described here? is 12 commissioners assigned to 12 districts. And these districts were formed to provide all the provisions needed for Israel's government. Let me say that another way. These 12 districts were created to support Solomon and his vast royal court in a manner that Shlomo demanded and most kings expected. These districts do not necessarily follow tribal boundaries. What they are is socioeconomic zones organized according to their economic capacity. In other words, Solomon and his advisors divided Israel up into taxation districts that often crossed tribal boundaries. So that each taxation district had a sufficient economic base so as to provide the enormous levy 
that was required of them by the government. Now, theoretically, the 12 districts should have been about equal in that regard, although no doubt they weren't really because politics played a significant role in determining those boundaries. Now, we're going to go over one go over them one by one rapidly, briefly. But we know, but rather you need to know that six of the districts were defined by tribal areas. The other six were defined by towns used to create the definition of that taxation district. Further, there is a disagreement among scholars as to whether, this is important, this list even included Judah or not. That is, many modern academics, Jewish and Christian, think that these 12 listed districts were strictly concerning the northern kingdom, while Judah was handled separately. We'll discuss that at the end of this list. Now, before we start, and some of you think that this is too academic or trivial for modern day believers to bother with, I want to stress that there is no proper understanding of the remaining books of the Old Testament without understanding Israel's politics and their tribal affiliations. It would be like trying to correctly understand modern-day America without knowledge of Plymouth Rock and the Christian pilgrims or George Washington in our Revolutionary War, Abraham Lincoln in our bloody Civil War, Roosevelt, World War II, without our understanding how we expanded from the east to the west, that we acquired much of the territory that forms our southwestern states from Mexico in a war, and the role that slavery played in our national psyche, and then later the civil rights movement, then to understand who we are today as a nation is simply not possible without our understanding this. That's because foreigners don't have this knowledge. They often get convoluted ideas about what some of our American national heritage celebrations mean why we intentionally created a government system that that can only move slowly and incrementally, why we view religion, race, race, ethnicity as we do, so on. So hang in there with me as we deal with this list of districts and then other historical issues in the Bible and you're going to be richly rewarded with a much deeper and a proper understanding of God's Word. Now this first district was run by Ben-Hur. Familiar name. Ben-Hur, which means son of Hur. And it consisted primarily of the hill country of Ephraim. If you take a look here, this map corresponds in order to what I'm going to be telling you. There's District 1. But it also included a little bit of the tribal territory of western Manisha. And we're going to see in chapter 11 that this district is also called the district of the house of Joseph because it included territory from both of his sons. 
So even after all these centuries away from Egypt and the replacement of Joseph's tribe by his sons Ephraim and Manasseh in Jacob's cross-handed blessing, it was understood that until some unknown time in the future, these two sons were merely placeholders for Joseph. The second district is defined by the names of four cities. Right down here. Only a couple which are known today. Beit Shemesh and Shalbim. This district was managed by a fellow named Ben Decker, son of Decker. It's generally located in the area that Dan formerly occupied before they migrated north. Unable to defeat all those nasty Canaanites and Philistines who occupied their territorial allotment. Now would be a good time to mention that five of these taxation districts, at least their commissioners, were identified only by their family names and not their actual name. That is, each of these were merely called the son of so-and-so. Son, Ben, in Hebrew. So the third district was governed by Ben Hesed. It ran along the Mediterranean Sea. This district was identified partly by clan territory called the land of Hefer and partly by towns. The fourth was identified only by the vital port city of Dor. A fellow named Ben Avinadav operated this district. Interestingly, he was a son-in-law of Shlomo. No doubt that had a whole lot to do with his appointment all right, to govern this important seaport that was critical to uh, Israel's national economy and commerce ambitions. Verse 12 speaks of Ba'ana as the commissioner over the great fertile northern valleys of Israel and the territory is defined by the well-known cities of uh, Tanakh and uh, um, Megiddo, yeah, the Megiddo of Armageddon, and by Beit Shan, that's that enormous archaeological ruin that I've taken so many of you to. Um, this is the fifth district. And if Israel had a breadbasket area, this was it. It was also an ancient and continuing thoroughfare for trader merchants, for armies. Great battles were fought there. And the war to end all wars will be fought there in the future. The sixth taxation district was governed by Ben Gever. This was territory that lay, here's the Jordan River, that lay to the east of the Jordan River, mostly in an area that the Torah refers to as Bashan. And it mentions a couple of cities by name and says it encompassed 60 walled cities. A large area indeed, and many people, Hebrew and Gentile, lived there. Seventh was what can only be described as the Eastern Jordan River Valley, all along here. And is identified by only one city, Machanaim. Now, interestingly, Machanaim was a royal city for a time. It was used by Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, when he took over as king from his deceased father, but he just ruled briefly. Part of the territory, tribal, uh, tribal territory of Gad was included in, in this district. 
The eighth district is identified as the tribal territory of Naphtali, up north here. Ahimaatz was its commissioner, and he too married one of the king's daughters. This is an area that would later be known as the Galilee. It sat at a very strategic uh, region where crops grew abundantly. Access roads to all points of the compass were present. It was kind of an agricultural hub of commerce. The Asher tribal territory is the next one. It probably included what we know as the tribal territory of Zebulun. This was the ninth district. This was overseen by a fellow named Ba'ana. This is a different Ba'ana than the one I listed in the fifth district. Just like today when certain names gained popularity for a time, it was obviously so among aristocrats that Ba'ana was a trendy name in that era. The tenth one was called Issachar. Right in here. All right, meaning the tribal territory of Issachar. And the commissioner was Jehoshaphat. Again, a different Jehoshaphat than we ran across back in the first list. It included the town of Jezreel, extended eastwards all the way over to the Jordan River. The eleventh district was run by Shimei. And it is essentially the tribal territory of Benjamin. All right. Notice that we've run into another Shimei who was a nemesis of David's. And uh, that one that Solomon put to death, he was also of the tribe of Benjamin. Shimei was a customary name used by the tribe of Benjamin. The 12th district's identification is not entirely certain. But all that really remains to assign is the southern section of the Transjordan and Judah. Right down over here. Transjordan, other side of the Jordan. There, therefore, the reference to Gilead very likely is referring to Gad's southern territories, including Reuben's territory. And since it also speaks of Og and Bashan, there's no doubt this district is located entirely on the east side of the Jordan. But then, this listing of taxation districts ends with this cryptic statement. Over all these was one administrator in the land. Now, the Jewish Publication Society says it ought to be translated as and one officer that was over all the officers of the land. The noted Jewish scholars Rainey and Notley think it should be rendered one commissioner was in the land of Judah. Here's what's causing the difficulty. There is no mention in this listing of districts and commissioners of a single city, town, boundary that's in Judah. Rainey and Notley add the word Judah because they think that the term the land, in Hebrew, Haaretz, can only be referring to Judah. Otherwise, the territory of Judah is left completely out of the list. But what this also seems to indicate is that the tribal territory of Judah was dealt with a bit differently than all the northern tribal territories when it came to taxation 
under Solomon. And since Shlomo was of the tribe of Judah, well, that's one reason you always hoped the king would be from your tribe. There was always direct benefit to the tribe when one of its own held national power. Then we're given a further clue as verse 20 ends with the words that Judah and Israel were very numerous and that they all drank, ate, drank, and enjoyed themselves. Two things. First note that Judah and Israel are still spoken of as separate and identifiable entities. And that is because despite the fact that they were both under the same king, they refused to give up their identities as belonging to either the northern or the southern tribal coalitions as opposed to seeing themselves as belonging to a single 12-tribe coalition. And it didn't help that Solomon gave Judah special treatment regarding taxation. And no doubt other matters as well. Second, notice the eat, drink, and be merry statement in the passage. Very quickly, the peace and prosperity under Solomon led to a free-flowing, pleasure-seeking, carnal type of lifestyle in Israel. Part of this was because of the enormous influx of foreigners into Israel as both visitors and resident aliens. And because Solomon demonstrated the greatest of tolerance for all of their customs and their religions with all of their various gods, Solomon developed quite a multicultural society. What on its face seems so intellectual, so high-minded, so kind, so economically profitable, soon led Israel off a cliff into a valley of iniquity from which they never quite escaped. That wide road at the bottom of that valley led first to the empire of Assyria and the scattering of the ten northern tribes. Then later to Babylon, Judah's place of exile. Well, let's move on to chapter 5. But before we do, I want you to notice that some of your Bibles continue on for another 15 verses in chapter 4. But Hebrew text-based translations, like the complete Jewish Bible, move now to chapter 5. This causes no harm at all. This only has to do with a scholarly disagreement over where to end one chapter and start the next. Okay, All the verses and words are there no matter which version, version you're using, since we're using the complete Jewish Bible, chapter 5 begins now. So, open your Bibles to chapter 5, or if you have a, a, a Bible uh, that is not like this one, you may be continuing in chapter 4 for a little bit. But you'll hear the same words. Shlomo ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River through the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They paid tribute and served Shlomo as long as he lived. 
Shlomo's provisions for one day consisted of 150 bushels of fine flour, 310 bushels of meal, 10 fattened oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep, in addition to deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened poultry. For he ruled all the area this side of the Euphrates River from Tifsah to Gaza. He was over all the kings on this side of the river. He had peace all around him on every side. From Dan to Beersheba, Judah and Israel lived securely, every man under his vine and fig tree, throughout the lifetime of Shlomo. Shlomo also had 40,000 stalls for the horses uh, used with his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Those officers supplied food and other materials for King Shlomo and for everyone for whom Shlomo provided. Each was responsible for his month's supplies. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also made sure there was barley and straw where it was needed for the horses and for the draft animals. Each filled his quota. God gave Shlomo exceptional wisdom and understanding as well as a heart as vast as the sandy beach by the sea. Shlomo's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of the people from the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than everyone, wiser than Etan the Ezrahi, wiser than Haman, Kalkol, uh, and Darda, the sons of Machol, so that his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He composed 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs. He could discuss trees from the cedar in the Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He could discuss wild animals, poultry, reptiles, and fish. People from all nations came to hear the wisdom of Shlomo, including kings from all over the earth who had heard his wisdom. Hiram, the king of Zor, sent his servants to Shlomo because he had heard that they had anointed him king in his father's place, and Hiram always loved David. Shlomo returned this message to Hiram. You know that David, my father, wasn't able to build a house for the name of Adonai, his God, because of the wars that beset him from every side, until Adonai put his enemies under the soles of my feet. But now Adonai has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor calamity. So now I intend to build a house for the name of Adonai, my God, in keeping with what Adonai said to David, my father. Your son, whom I put, will put on the throne in your place, he will be the one to build the house for my name. Therefore, order your people to cut down cedar trees from the Lebanon for me. My servants will be with your servants. I will pay your servants according to everything you say. For you know that we have no one among us as skilled in felling trees as the Sidonim. And when Hiram heard Shlomo's message, he was very happy. And he said, Blessed be Adonai today who has given David a wise son to rule this great people. And then Hiram sent Shlomo this message. I have heard the message you sent me. I will do everything you want concerning cedar logs and cypress logs. My servants will bring them down from the Lebanon to the sea. I will make them into rafts to go by sea to whatever place you tell me and will have them broken up there and you will receive them. You will compensate me by providing food for my household. 
So Hiram gave Shlomo all the cedar logs and cypress logs he wanted, and Shlomo gave Hiram a hundred thousand bushels of wheat as food for his household and a thousand gallons of oil from pressed olives. This is what Shlomo gave Hiram each year. Adonai gave Shlomo wisdom as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Shlomo. The two of them formed an alliance together. Now King Shlomo conscripted 30,000 men from all Israel for forced labor. He sent them to the Lebanon in monthly relays of 10,000. They'd stay a month in the Lebanon and two months at home. Adinoram was in charge of the forced labor. Shlomo had 70,000 men to carry loads and another 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, besides Shlomo's 3,300 supervisors who were in charge of the people doing the work. The king gave the orders, and they quarried large stones, expensive stones, to lay the foundation of the house with cut stone. Shlomo's and Hiram's builders, along with the men from Gibal, worked the stones and prepared the timber and stones for building the house. <clears throat> What's described in verse 1 is the largest expanse of territory that Israel has ever controlled. I'm going to make that point again at a later time. But it's a sad truth that the short time that modern Israel has existed, 63 years, is only slightly shorter than the mere 80 years that Israel existed as a unified sovereign nation under David and then Solomon. Israel's golden age was very brief. The statement that describes the extent of Shlomo's rule over all the kingdoms, meaning Gentile kingdoms, from the Euphrates to the Philistines to Egypt, needs some explanation. Just as in the last verse of chapter 4, when it was said that the residents of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore, this is, of course, to be taken in the same vein as this statement about Solomon ruling over all kingdoms from the, Euphr from the uh, Euphrates River all the way south to Egypt. Obviously, number one, there were not trillions of Israelites equal in number to all the sand grains. And just as obviously, Solomon didn't rule over every kingdom south of the Euphrates River. For one thing, the Euphrates River is over 1,700 miles long, beginning in Turkey, what's modern-day Turkey, and going all the way and then emptying into the Persian Gulf. Now please be aware that just as we use certain broad and expansive statements in our English language to communicate largeness or, or relatively high quantities and we use other general statements because there's no need to communicate something precisely. It's that way in the Bible. Further, just as it is today, we usually speak in relation to our location, our culture, 
and the context of whatever the subject is. The Bible does the same. So we have to be careful not to take biblical statements like the one which ends chapter 4 and then the one that begins chapter 5 as rigid and absolute. Rather, the territory that forms Solomon's Israel is generally the land to the west side, is what it's getting at, the west side of the Euphrates as opposed to the east. And it's speaking of a land in relation to areas near the only land that Israel had interest or divine rights in, the promised land. The Solomon's Israel generally controlled the land along both sides, here's the Jordan River, both sides of the Jordan River, the whole length of it, and on up into what is modern day Syria, Jordan, and then also of course what today is I think so terribly wrongly called the West Bank. What Solomon's Israel did not control was Lebanon and it didn't control Phoenicia. But they had excellent diplomatic ties with those countries. They did not control Philistine territory. What we think of as Gaza today. A few miles north of that as well. But there was peace. Israel's border with Egypt, right here, is almost identical to Israel's border with Egypt today that ends at the Sinai. There were a number of small and medium-sized kingdoms of non-Hebrews in that large area controlled by Shlomo, and as was usual for the time, a vassal king was installed by Solomon over those kingdoms, or an existing king agreed to come under Solomon's control in exchange for being allowed to remain in power. The price for that kind of arrangement was that each kingdom agreed to give a specified amount of tribute on a regular basis to King Solomon who ruled over all of them. In verses 2 and 3, chapter 4 would be verses 22 and 23 if you've got that kind of a Bible, there is a listing of the food items needed to supply Solomon and his royal court. The numbers are staggering. And they're given in terms of what was needed daily. C.F. Keel, that 19th century Christian commentator, calculates that these provisions were sufficient for 14,000 people. Other scholars have calculated as high as 60,000 people. The differences are generally based on what the meanings are of these ancient measurements in relation to modern standard measures and how much a single person might require. Either way, it shows just how large and expansive Solomon's government had become in so short a time and how many of that government the ordinary citizens had to support by giving up their own produce and livestock. A little research into Persian and Arabian monarchies shows that the size of the royal court in relation 
to the size of the overall population and the amount of the levy to supply these government officials that's envisioned here in First Kings is completely commensurate with those kings and sultans of other cultures. So the biblical account we're reading in no way needs to be regarded as either exaggerated or exorbitant on Shlomo's part. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 4 gives us a little bit more detail on the area of Israel under Solomon and it speaks of uh, Tisach, the city that lies along the Euphrates. And this is all the way to Gaza, one of Philistine cities. The key word in all of these passages, though, is peace. As much as his father David was a man who fought wars most of his life and all during his reign, Solomon inherited peace and security, and so he was free to seek economic expansion. When it says, from Dan to Beersheba, this was just an old traditional way of saying all of Israel. Saying a man lived under his fig tree and his vine meant he was having a leisurely life, enjoying the fruits of what grew on his land and in his fields and his orchards. But verse 6 is problematic because the number of horses contemplated is enormous. Probably not correct. Whereas 1 Kings 5 says that the number of horses was 40,000. 2 Chronicles 9 says that number was 4,000, not 40. Further, that number isn't really of horses, but rather of stalls of horses, which leads to the issue of how many horses in a stall? Some rectify this discrepancy between Kings and Chronicles by saying that Chronicles actually list stalls while Kings list individual horses. Therefore, there was ten horses per stall. But there's no evidence of that, biblical or archaeological. And the likelihood of Solomon having 40,000 horses is very remote. So, no doubt, the number is indeed stalls. And the 40,000 is a copyist error that ought to read 4,000. And if we calculate that each of Solomon's 1,400 chariots required two horses, plus say one is a spare, which is pretty customary, that says that the need for all of his chariots was 4,200. And if each of the 12,000 horsemen had a horse, then the total number of horses needed for would have been 12,000 plus the 4,200 for the chariots, which equals 16,200. And that's a lot more plausible number, no matter. The point is that for that era, even that amount of horses was awesome. Another interesting factor in all this, because of the politics of it, is that Egypt was the main supplier of horses to the entire Middle East in those days. There is no chance that Israel could have obtained so many horses without obtaining a substantial number of them from Egypt. Horses were very valuable animals. They were fearsome in battle. Thus, the nation that had them didn't sell them to just anyone. It's like today, 
regarding military armaments. A nation that manufactures them sells them only to someone they're on friendly terms with, and the armaments are often used as political bargaining chips. I have little doubt that the mention at the start of chapter 3 of Solomon's marriage to the daughter of the Pharaoh is part and parcel for the reason for this vast cavalry now at Solomon's disposal. But more, as Rashi points out, the marriage to Pharaoh's daughter began a steady downward slide in Shlomo's relationship with God and thus how he ruled over his kingdom. And this was because that marriage was nothing more nor less than the surety of an alliance between Egypt and Israel. This kind of alliance was not supposed to have happened. In fact, it was forbidden. Don't turn there, but I'm going to read you Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. When you have entered the land Adonai your God is giving you, have taken possession of it and are living there, you may say, I want to have a king over me like all the other nations around me. In that event, you must appoint as king the one who, whom Adonai your God will choose. He must be one of your kinsmen, this king you appoint over you. You are forbidden to appoint a foreigner over you who's not your kinsman. However, he is not to acquire many horses for himself or have the people return to Egypt to obtain horses inasmuch as Adonai told you to never go back that way again. Likewise, he's not to acquire many wives for himself so that his heart will not turn away. He is not to acquire excessive quantities of gold and silver. Well, Solomon was running headlong into trouble all the while thinking his brilliance was leading Israel into a new age of enlightenment and peace. In this short passage alone, just look at the commandments of God that he was breaking. Not only the letter, but the spirit of those commandments. Should Israel appoint a king over themselves, something warned against, the Torah says this king ought not to lead his people back towards Egypt. That is, they are not to create a relationship of alliance with Egypt. This did not necessarily mean they were to go to war with Egypt, but to begin to intermingle politically, religiously, socially, and within her marriage. This was all forbidden. Not only that, but the king was not to obtain a large number of horses, and he wasn't to obtain a large number of wives. Now Solomon not only ignored these divine instructions, he did the opposite to the extreme. And so the eventual outcome was inevitable. 